Welcome to an Uncommon Conversation, brought to you by the Kaufman Foundation. This episode is the second in a series of frank, personal conversations between women in the entrepreneurship space who discuss equity and economic engagement through the lens of their personal and professional experiences. In this installment, we bring together Naomi Hirabashi, the co-founder of Shine, and Desiree Vargas Wrigley, the executive director of TechRise and founder of Parachute. The women share how they've built their businesses, navigated bias around their identities, and earned success from resiliency, working with allies, and acting as allies for others. They candidly address the barriers to raising capital and the impact inequities, such as the gender wage gap, have on the earnings and innovative potential of women. Desiree, do you want to start? Um, sure. I, I don't even know where to start, but I um, I was actually working at the Kaufman Foundation when I got my first idea for a business. And that was um, one of the first crowdfunding platforms in the world called Give Forward. So I moved to Chicago and built that to $200 million in transactions and about 30 million uniques a year. So it got to be a pretty big site. Amazing. And then had a real kind of like, I think woman founder moment and doubted myself and thought maybe a, a seasoned operator would be able to, to do a better job and grow it faster. Mm. So I stepped into a strategy role that did, was not a good, good call at all. And wow. then I ended up building my second company parachute um, also in Chicago and it is a kid's activity marketplace. So we help busy moms find enrichment activities for their children. And at the same time, help support small businesses who are looking for an efficient and easy way to find their ideal families and customers. Congrats on everything you've built and the uh, doubting yourself moment. And it turns out like you were the best person for the job, no doubt yeah. is very, is very real. So I would, I would love to hear more about that. Um, yeah, I'm Naomi. I am the co-founder at Shine. Um, Shine is on a mission to make taking care of your mental, emotional, health easier and more representative and more inclusive and our myself and my business partner mar who's actually out on maternity leave right now with her beautiful new daughter um our path to entrepreneurship came from really just our own kind of frustration and feeling very much overlooked in the well-being industry both as um women of color and feeling like uh a lot of in a lot of ways it's gotten better but when we started shine in 2016 you know, feeling like there was an absence in um, the wellness world or in the mental health world to talk about and, and get support for taking care of your mental and emotional health in a way that was much more preventative daily and conversational. So fast forward to where we are now five years later. So we just, we actually just celebrated our five-year milestone at Shine. We're in 189 countries. We were just named best of 2020 by Apple for the work that we did um, for more inclusive mental health, particularly on the backdrop of this, this last year. And um, I'm just so, I'm so excited to like have this conversation. This was like one of those conversations I was really excited about. Um, I think both being female founders, you know, is an underrepresented experience in the space and that's changing, but there's still so much change that needs to happen. And then mm -hmm. um, I have a two and a half year old daughter and just navigating being a, a, a co-founder and a mother and, you know, all of the, the, you know, your, your company is your child as well. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, it's just a very unique experience. Um, and I'm always eager to hear from um, just other women in the journey. Um, well, I'm also a mother. Uh, my kids are um, nine and about to turn seven. And then I'm also a stepmom to a 15 year old. So I'm, you know, a few years ahead of you, but I'm curious as a woman and entrepreneur, kind of how you navigated yeah. this last year with a, you know, a two and a half year old 
Yeah. Then a one and a half year old that is. Yes. Well, it's so interesting because I even look at pictures. I'm sure everybody's doing this to some degree of like last March feels like, you know, a lifetime ago, a world ago, all the things. And um, she was still a baby in so many ways then, you know, and I think probably for a lot of mothers, it's like, it's gone through different stages. The first three months of the pandemic were incredibly hard because we didn't have, you know, with a qualifier of like hard in comparison and keeping perspective on all of it. But um, we didn't, you know, we didn't have any daycare, we didn't have any childcare coverage. And that on top of building a business and a lot going on in the world and in our country um, that, you know, deeply impacted our community was just, was just a hard time to navigate. And I think um, I tried to talk very kindly to myself about what I was able to get done, you know, because it was like jumping between meetings and um, trying to give her a bath and feed her and then being like, oh, she's, well, she's watching eight hours of television today. That's just what today looks like because of those are the only options that we have. Um, and then um, also experience, I had an ectopic pregnancy last, um, last year. And so there was just, there was a lot happening. Um, and I think that's, a, there's a version of, everybody has some version of that. There's been so much grief and loss in this last year. Um, and, and it takes a lot of different ways and shapes and forms. Um, so how that impacts me today is like, I think just the resilience of all of us. And I think particularly as women who have like had to hold so many things together at once to give myself space that like some days look a little different in terms of productivity. <laughs> um, feeling appreciation for the progress that we have made, like seeing her in school and social and getting curriculums and all that. And then like my health, my health as a woman, you know, not taking that for granted. But yeah, what, what about you? I mean, that's, you know, having a teenager and, you know, all kids in school age, like, that's a lot to manage. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was really, really tough yeah. specifically for me and the business that parachute is in, you know, we are the last minute kids activity marketplace. So, you know, think like drop into a ballet class to see if it's something that you want to be doing long-term. And, and so I, you know, I suddenly found myself without any inventory to be selling. And even, you know, yes, the transition to online was a possibility, but there were so many competitors that were so far ahead of us in the space. And, and we yeah. didn't know how long it was going to last. It didn't feel like the right move at the right time for us, just given the business model. And so we did eventually evolve, not eventually, we did it pretty quickly, but to allow for online class bookings through the platform. Yeah. But it was, you know, personally such a hard place to be in because uh, Parachute hit this really amazing um, momentum at the very beginning of 2020, we changed our business model from being like a class pass for kids to being more like Expedia. And so we went from about 1500 locations on the platform to 6,000 in five weeks. And so it felt like we were, you know, as a, a four-year-old company at that point, we were finally starting to hit our stride and it had been a kind of a slog. I'm yeah. sure you've experienced this fundraising, but when you're building a business that's unfamiliar, like the problem is unfamiliar to a predominantly white, rich male investor pool. Yes. It just takes a lot longer to get the traction metrics yes. that you need to get to the next level. Yeah. And so most men, unfortunately, had never spent three hours looking for floor hockey for a seven-year-old. So they didn't really understand mm -hmm. what we were solving. And, mm -hmm. and I did raise money. I mean, I raised $4 million. So it's not like I didn't raise Which anything but compared yeah. to, thank you, but compared to like the $20 million, right. you know, the money in the market, yeah. Other marketplaces yeah. that are solving <laughs> less important problems, I think, um, you know, it just, it felt like it was not enough. Um, so, you know, on the one side, I felt like, okay, we have this business model that's going to work. And me as a founder, I felt really validated by the, the changes that we'd made. And then of course, there's like 
outside of our control circumstances happen, mm-hmm. but it didn't just affect me and my 12 first person team. It was, you know, the now 6,000 locations that are predominantly run by women and people of color for enriching our children. All of them got, we all get hit with the same problem at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that, that time period between when everything shut down and when PPP opened up was tremendously stressful mm-hmm. for us as a startup and, you know, my, our, our partners. Yeah. And we saw, you know, the level of, of work that fell on mother's shoulders because most of those business owners are also mothers. It was just kind of unmanageable. Sorry. No, no. My husband on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, it was an unmanageable amount of work. And, and at the same time, you know, my youngest was in kindergarten and so not yet reading. And so e-learning became this incredible burden and my husband's a police officer, so he can't be home to help. Right. And, and so I, I really struggled and I know I wasn't alone. There were a lot of women who were going through something similar in terms of how do I balance what is now a, a diminishing career or business opportunity at the same time I have all of these you know, personal demands and this like, general fear of like, what happens if I get sick? What happens if I'm not right. here with my kids? Right. Right. And so, so many of my friends moved to part-time or removed themselves from the workforce. And, mm-hmm. you know, these are high earning women yes. that were, you know, suddenly taking themselves off the path. And it, it just feels like we have lost a decade and a half of progress as women, um, you know, professionally, and also the stay at home moms who are thinking about going back that now feel like that's completely off the table right. or that their skill sets are that much farther behind now because of all of the acceleration that we had technically and digitally over the last year. So we have a lot of work to do as a society, I think, to, to fix things for women. And knowing that we were already behind, you know, there's already inequity, so much inequity. I know Um, a friend of mine wrote this book and she, I mean, she's borrowing the the data, but the, I didn't realize that the gender pay gap is $564 billion a year. And I mean, I knew it was big, but like when you talk about it in terms of 18 cents on the dollar or whatever, you're like, oh, that's 18 cents. But when you amplify that to the population or magnify it, um, that's the equivalent of one quarter of the first stimulus bill. So every four years, women are getting the full impact of the stimulus bill negated against our like earning potential. It's insane. So what can we What's do about the, it? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and you know, um, I wanted to give a shout out to Reshma, who uh, was the former founder. She, she just transitioned. Um, she was the founder of Girls Who Code. She's been doing a lot of work. Um, around this initiative called Marshall Plan, the Marshall's Plan for Moms. And it's around creating essentially like stimulus packages specifically for motherhood and um, recognizing exactly, you know, as you said so well, you know, we've lost, we were already, already behind. And I didn't realize the, the cumulative number of what that 18 cents represents, which is, you know, staggering, just staggering. Um, and and, and, and then this happened, this last year happened, right? And so much of that is obviously outside of our control, but I think it reflects, it reflects what happens, which is, you know, women are predominantly, you know, we're obviously broad strokes, general terms, like caretaking more. Um, and the choice of, the choice of, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Do you, you know, making up, having to like make that choice between your kid's education and in your salary and your career. And, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we do about it, but I, I definitely think talking about it and just raising, just r- raising the level of awareness around what the problem is. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think as women, I don't know, it'd be 
be curious, like Desiree, for you, it's like also just hits home and that there's so many different situations that we've endured in fundraising or as female founders and, you know, very underrepresented group in a predominantly white male system that like you felt those inequities, you know, you, it's like that number as a representation has been felt in meetings or times that you've been, you know, undervalued or overlooked. And um, we do, we just have a lot of, a lot of work to do. There's so many examples, I think, of that in my career, and I'm sure you have it too, but from, you know, when I was leaving Give Forward because I couldn't watch this other person kind of sink this this baby that I had built, yeah. the severance that, that I was offered was I started the company first. I brought in a male co-founder. My severance was less than what they offered my male co-founder. And it was, I mean, I just couldn't believe that they would even have the gall to do it. And then wow. similarly, you know, when, when fundraising, Yes, we raise money from a lot of the same firms that some of, you know, cool peers raise from, um, but our check sizes were a third yeah. of what they got yeah. and the valuation reflected that, right. even though our revenue and momentum was the same or better. Right. And it's, it's so hard as a woman to, to find that out after and feel like you were, you know, betrayed in this, this meeting that seemed like a collaborative partnership, but really probably just checking the box in some ways for yes. them to have some diversity in their portfolio and, and, you know, it's, it's something that I'm actually working on now. I'm now running an, an initiative called TechRise, which is a $5 million friends and family round of funding for Black and Latinx founders in Chicago. And Amazing. it's non-dilutive grants. And we do 30 pitch competitions a year. That's how we distribute the funds. So it's pretty democratized. We invite VCs and angels from across the country to come in. We really are trying to change that, that narrative, at least locally. And we're very, very focused too on the intersectionality of, you know, of women, trans, non-binary with the Black and Latinx communities, because Black women only get 0.27% of venture funding and yes. Latina women get 0.37. Yes. And women as a whole get 2.4, but it's an embarrassing sum as a country yeah. that is supposed to be more progressive. So. That is um, amazing that you're doing that. And I love to hear about, um, you know, for Mar and myself, Mar was the first in her family to go to college. I went to community colleges, ended up graduating from a four-year university, but we didn't necessarily have like the track that was the typical track. Um, and something that we were so thankful for is the democratized open access forms for getting into what is a very exclusive industry. And uh, um, a shout out to Harlem Capital is actually one of our investors on our most recent round. They, if you go to their website, for anyone that's listening, like especially if you're an investor, they have such a great example of how to, to do exactly what you're doing because they want to diversify the face of entrepreneurship. Here's what we look for. Send us your deck. And like, that's how you do it. You don't need a warm intro. You don't have to have, you know, gone to like certain schools necessarily. And that's to me, the future of like, how do we change in equity? I think one of the biggest things is we get more people solving for problems that they've experienced versus people trying to come in and either solve for problems to your, to your point that like, aren't actually that big of problems, but it's like a sexy pitch deck or people that are trying to solve problems in the wrong way out of like, what is good intentions, but a savior mentality. And when you think about, you know, just the, the wealth that comes out of the success stories of venture capital, it's like, how do we get more people in the door and how many ideas are left on the table because nobody can get in that front door. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. convinced that we have this latent entrepreneurial energy that's locked behind you know, computers or target checkout stands or at home with kids, because there aren't yes. enough women saying like, why not me? Why can't I be the one to, to bring this idea to life? Yes. And part of it is access to capital, of course, right? You know, you, you think you need a quarter of a million dollars to start your business. And fortunately that's not true anymore. There's so many third-party technologies and, right. and light code versions of getting our, 
you know, our products into the world. I'm sure if you were starting shine right now, you'd, you know, there's so many different things you could do that yes, would expedited yes. and, and taking a lot of the cost upfront cost off. So helping educate women about those resources, I think is crucial to being able to take that step, but you know, access to networks and knowledge are the other two pieces. And so I think, you know, whether you're a local funding ecosystem or right. you're an entrepreneur that wants to like kind of reach out nationally to other women, I think it's our responsibility to open the door and, and reach back and bring other women through it with us um, and being mindful of not just inviting women that look like us, but women that don't look like us to come through. And yeah. then the other piece of it is, I think we need to make sure that as a country, we're doing a better job of funding early stage consumer businesses, because as you said, people solve problems that they personally understand really well. Mm -hmm. And first time founders, that is what they do. But yes. first time founders, they may have succeeded or they may not, right? right. But we can get them through that like life cycle and meet angel investors, meet VCs, and the chances of their second company being either, you know, a, an easier to fund B2B SaaS company is higher, or they'll be much better at that second company yes. and more likely to bring it to a valuation that provides returns for them and for their investors. So. And sets that example of like, like we need, cause there's, you know, there's who gets this, the pre-seed money, which is just getting the pre-seed money or seed money is huge but it's like 50% of companies get to the five-year milestone. You know, of those 50%, to your point, start doing the math, like the 2%, you know, or so of women. And then, you know, as an Asian American woman, there's more representation within women than Black or Latinx. Um, but Mara was, I think maybe the 17th or 18th Black woman in the U.S. to raise more than a million dollars in VC funding. Vanity Fair did a really powerful piece on it. And I think it's where, like you were saying, to be inclusive, you have to be specific. Like if we're gonna talk about what the problems are and what the opportunities are in the space for more representation, we have to be specific about where we need more representation. And so women overall need more representation, but particularly black and, and Latinx founders. Yeah, it's um, crazy. Chicago, we have two Latinas that have raised over a million dollars and I'm one of them. And that is, and I did it quite a while ago. And so it's just, yeah. you know, we're a big city with a pretty strong right. funding wow. ecosystem. Not, and most people don't realize this, but Chicago is actually a third black, a third Latinx and a third white. And so we are under indexing by such a yes. huge margin yeah. when you think about our overall distribution yeah. of, of race. So I have a question for you, yeah. um, which is also like, I, and I think Mara probably had the same feeling too, where it's like, that's such a, like, do you feel this mix of like, that's such pride in terms of what you're representing, but then like, why are there only two of us that are like getting that, you know, just the frustration. What do you think like that identity, being a woman, um, uh, being a woman of color, being a mother, has impacted like how you talk to yourself every day or like risk is such a big part of yeah. being a founder. And I know that's something I struggle with is it's taken me a very long time to say like, just, you have to get comfortable with like the risk because we, I think as women of color, we have less room for failures as women, we have less room for failure. And that's something you carry every single day. So how is, how's your identity kind of impacted the journey? It's such a great question. And, and, and I would love your thoughts on it too, because especially as like a first generation college student for yeah. your family or a first generation immigrant, right. Um, you know, there is a lot of pressure and the opportunity costs of, of entrepreneurship are actually that much higher because mm -hmm. the uncertainty and the risk of failure, there's no safety net within your kind of family wealth. Right. Right. And so right. If you fail, you, you could really take your family under family. Yeah. Um, especially anyone that's invested in you along the way, which is why I didn't do any friends and family rounds of funding um, for my, com my companies because I just didn't have it within my within my family. Right. And, you know, I, I, I recognize that I present as white and I did go to Yale. And so I know that I have the privilege of sharing the pedigree, although I'm a woman, that that's still more familiar for a lot of VCs and mm -hmm. angels. And, and 
and with that comes a different level of responsibility, mm-hmm. I think, to get back and to bring my peers that are, you know, did not go to an Ivy League school mm-hmm. or, you know, don't have a CS degree from, you know, Stanford, yeah. which I also don't have, but that, you know, like that is a, a big driver for me. And, and candidly, like post George Floyd last year, mm-hmm. I just felt like as a founder who's had all these opportunities in Chicago, I, you know, went through Techstars, I bootstrapped for a long time. I raised money from nationwide insurance as a strategic investor. I raised venture debt. I did an equity crowdfunding campaign on Republic. I was on Shark Tank. Like I've had all these experiences. Yeah, which like, is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Things I'm not trying to brag. I'm more just saying like, I need to do something with this because my company, you know, is is failing because of COVID. And, and I think my long answer to your question is that there is a tremendous amount of, of like, stress around needing to succeed when you're one of two Latinas that have raised a million dollars in your city and the pressure to represent yeah. is really high. And so the, yeah. the fear of failure slash the kind of reputation piece of this is, is definitely something that I struggle with as mm-hmm. a woman founder in Chicago. And I think I'm so lucky to have found, you know, and partnered with P33 to build TechRise because I feel like that experience is not for nothing, right? That I can now use it and share it right. and, and elevate other founders um, in a way that they probably didn't have access to before. So, right. What about you? That's really powerful. Um, and I think that the opportunity cost is so real. Um, I mean, yeah. Jumping into a business with your friend from work is like, like the riskiest. Right, right, ways, right, right. Oh my gosh. I know. And there's some interesting stats where I think it's like, if it's just a friend, <laughs> the stats are low. If it's a coworker and a friendship, that's a very strong dynamic. But Mar and I are really, you know, we, we've, we, we say it's like, we've done more work together than like relationship. We're both married and it's like, but it's a partnership and there's so many different stages to what we've done. And I think the thing, the, the thing that was really hard for us in our first year was unlearning a lot of, we came out of a fairly toxic culture in the place that we met, a very toxic culture. Um, and it's part of why we connected because we were the only senior women of color on the management team. And there was just, you know, there's like, we know there's all the work that you do on yourself and with yourself, but then there's how you go and interact with the world and how the world interacts with you. And so that was something that we both really struggled with at our old company and we're lucky to find each other. It's um, been really powerful for both Mar and I to be more open with our experience and our journey. And there's the experience that we share as two women of color. And then there's the individual experience, you know, Mar is a black woman um, and everything that that means in America. Um, and then there's myself as I'm fourth generation Japanese American. So I'm, I, I, I'm, physically I'm very Asian, you know, but I don't, I, I don't have as much of, um, because I'm fourth generation, it's like culturally, um, there's things that I I wish I had a a bigger part of my Japanese culture. And so we, when we first started, we would, we, from the beginning, we're saying, you know, wellness and, and just talking about what you struggle with needs to be a lot more accessible. Um, and so from the beginning, you know, we put inclusion and representation at the forefront of the company. We didn't necessarily have an initiative, but it's like, if we can get more women of color in leadership positions, our team is 80% BIPOC. And that just happens because it's, you know, it's just part of our own experience. And it's when you go to a website and you see people that, you know, represent more of what all of America looks like, that's going to attract a more diverse set of, set of people. And so um, from the beginning, we've, we've said, this is really important. And what we want to do is figure out how to use our platform where we're talking about mental health themes, but they're also, we're very explicit that that has to intersect with what's happening in the world. So 
why we've stood out. And for example, Apple, one of the big reasons why they gave us that award is because we launched a specific, specific meditations for black well-being after the murder of George Floyd and in the fight for racial justice. We recently just did a similar um, set of meditations for AAPI, knowing that there's so much happening in our community right now that is is very scary. And um, there's just a lot of conversations that are happening for the first time around like identity and mental health. And um, all that to say, I think when we first started, the mistake that we made is while it was always part of the foundation, we kind of took ourselves out of it. We said, Shine should be the book, not the, not the movie. We want you to imagine Shine however you want it to be. But we realized that that was kind of doing a disservice. And so in this last year, we've put ourselves on the paywall. We put, we launched an about us page, which is so basic, but like just telling our story. It's like, look, we started this because we were overlooked. Like whether it was our body sizes, our past trauma, our, you know, our dynamics growing up in our families, like we just felt kind of otherized in the way that like wellness was being sold. And that, I mean, that like doubled conversion, um, just so many testimonials from our community being like, I just, I feel seen. I feel seen for the first time in the meditation space that has been largely appropriated in a lot of ways by like kind of a homogenous, you know, white male culture or white culture. And um, that I think has been a really powerful experience for us this last year is to just say like, let's just be more open about who we are, what we've struggled with and trust that like we're doing it with a community that has our back because they're joining us to, to take a different approach. Um, and it's helping us grow. It's helping us grow in our identity. But that's a lot easier to do in our community than it was maybe in the investor community starting out. You know, like I think there's a lot more awareness now in the VC space because of this last year and the and the conversations around race that we're having. You know, in for a lot of people the first time. You know, um, but when we first started, there was a lot of like, oh, are you a not for profit? Because we come from the not for profit world, and because we kind of we're both, I think, kind women. And for some reason that just means charity for people. <laughs> Doesn't exactly. the idea that that can't be connected to a really successful business is a very big problem. I think in our, in our company's like a version of alpha leadership. Um, and I think because, you know, what we struggled with a little bit was a way, a, this is, this is again, not all VCs. We're really lucky. We have great investors that are like very partner focused. A lot are, you know, from marginalized communities. But there was definitely some more of the antiquated traditional VCs that we met that it's like, oh, I, you know, I, I had my daughter check out Shine. I don't know if she likes it. And it's like, well, I don't know if your daughter is our target. And it's like, if you're a woman, you either, they want to relate to you through their wife, the secretary, or their daughter. And if you can't relate, if you, if you don't look like any of that, it's like, well, where do I put you? You can't just be a potential like entrepreneur and obviously that's like oversimplifying stuff but that that's definitely like some of the interactions we had and so I think it's interesting I think if we were to go out and raise now I like to think it would be different I think there's more there's an increased awareness around why our approach matters both from a business and impact perspective but there's still a lot of change that needs to happen yeah, no, I, I completely agree. A few years ago when I was raising for Parachute, I was talking to an investor who came highly recommended was on a friend's cap table. And he said to me, is it really that big of a problem? My wife figured it out. And I was like, so offended for his wife and for me and my business. But I was also thinking to myself, like, mm. you know, yes, your wife and secretary also booked your dinner reservations and bought your plane tickets before, but you still funded the white men that solved that problem for them. So why yes. Fund so true. The woman who's building the business that's now going to save, you know, your wife and your family hours of time and lots of money. To buy. Oh gosh. 
And so it's, it's moments like that where you're like, oh, we have so far to go still. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. then, then you also kind of run into it with women investors, you know, yeah. if, if they haven't, like the social capital that women have within their firms, depending on the firm can be pretty low because they haven't had a track record yet. Right. So, so many of them are early in their careers. And so to stick their neck out for an ultra female business is yes. actually quite hard for many of them, which is why you see so many of them in like crypto and B2B and SaaS and, you know, future of work, because it's an easier place for them to cut their teeth and have some big wins early on. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, you know, we just need more consumer focused funds with, with diverse decision makers. And, yes. um, and I don't want to say, I mean, I've been supported and I'm so grateful for the, the VCs that have come to the table and said, yes, we believe in you and this is a problem we're solving. Um, but, you know, it took so many no's and as women, especially if you're, you know, high achieving woman, uh, like type A personality, that comfort with rejection is it's a very painful muscle to, to develop and, and so foreign to how we live our lives. Right. And so I do think that that's one of the areas where we as women kind of need to step up and, and like, like this problem isn't going to get solved for us by men. Right. And and it's not going to get solved for us by exclusively women either. And so if we want to increase, you know, or narrow the wealth gap and narrow the pay gap, and if we want to have more representation by women, we need to do the work ourselves too, to get more comfortable with failure with imposter syndrome, with all the things that I think hold us back. Yes. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. And to that point of, um, like, uh, just thinking about getting more comfortable with some of those, those daily challenges of imposter syndrome or negative self-talk or lack of self-compassion. Like, how do you feel like, how do you feel like that journey has changed for you? Like, has, do you feel like there's been progress and, you know, like, okay, I trust, I trust myself. Like how has, has that evolved for you in terms of your relationship with yourself and and confidence in in the game? (laughs) Yeah. I think if you, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm laughing at myself trying to answer it because I think in many ways I treated that as like whack-a-mole. Like I, like I kind of solved it at work, but then it would like flare up at home really bad because I wasn't like using the same toolkit to solve the problem. Yes. Oh, that's very relatable. Not so much imposter syndrome at home, but like, you know, self-doubt, not giving your kind of person across the table, the benefit of the doubt in the conversations. Um, and so, you know, a couple of things happened for me that really changed things. So one give forward hiring the CEO and, and recognizing like the, the lack of confidence in myself was a combination of just that, but also a lack of leadership training. I, you know, I'd never really had a long-term boss and I'd never been a manager before. And suddenly I had 45 people under me and I just didn't know how to reconcile my vision for the company with my obligations as a coach mentor and leader. And so I did invest in an executive coach um, that was really helpful for me in identifying some of my own blind spots as a leader. And so that as painful as that journey was to lose that company and the potential wealth that could have gone with it. I gained so much so early in my career because I stepped away and did that forced reflection. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but then fast forward and I think I still struggled with some other things. So I actually uh, started seeing a founder therapist, which I don't know if they exist all over the country, but I very much Great. recommend yeah. women finding a therapist that like is familiar with the business line that you're in. Um, yes. Because it's so much easier to get to the heart of like what's bothering you in, in both your personal and professional life. Um, so I would say like, that's where I made a lot of progress. And then 
I'm also a huge Wayne Dyer fan. <laughs> so when I go for walks and, you know, I'm, I'm like reading, but or listening to, but I really love listening on audible and it just kind of reminds you to think about yourself and like in the context of the world and like this, right. like whatever this drama is, is not that big. And what's the worst thing that can right. happen? Usually it's not <laughs> as bad as you think. So yes, I, it's, I, I don't do enough meditating, but I do do some Wayne Dyer walking. So I, I feel like walking is such a powerful meditation too, but I think walking is, is one of the most powerful tools we have if you're able to do it. Um, a founder therapist is really smart. Absolutely. I mean, I hope that someone's listening and starts a business that yeah. spins these off like crazy because we need more of them. Um, yeah. But I was actually going to switch gears and ask you about, you know, having a female co-founder. I'm, I'm curious, you know, how that journey has been, you said you were friends already, which helps a lot, but you know, in some ways, I think that the negative self-talk can be amplified when two women are together and experiencing the same kind of frustration or disappointment. Yeah. I'm curious, like how it's been a benefit and then how you've maybe had to overcome some of the challenges of, of two women co-founders. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question because I love the curiosity around it because, um, you know, when we first started, we got a lot of, um, curiosity in terms of like, belief and interest in this is like one form of leadership, you know, because when we first started, uh, another example of some of the like, um, toxic masculinity stuff that we had to deal with, it's like, but who will win? Like who will kill each other? Like there was a lot of, I think some of that was maybe where they've seen it gone wrong, but there was just no benefit of the doubt of like, this is a version that works for us. And it's like, when you think about what the product is, it kind of, it all sort of makes sense. Um, so I'm very grateful that with time, as you know, and success in terms of just time, like sticking around and, you know, surviving, there's so much more now interest in how we're doing it versus like doubt, which has just been nice. Um, because what we've said from the beginning is that like, Mara and I are, are very different people. Um, a similar sense of humor, um, a lot of resilience, um, a lot of the same values, you know, and you have to have that. But, um, even when we look at like communication styles, like communication types, different colors, you know, there's like, um, she's more red. She's better at like decision-making and like, um, she's just, I, I, I admire so much about her ability to like take complex things and, and simplify them into like what's most actionable. I'm more of like a yellow green kind of collaborate. I want to get everybody's opinion. And then like, talk about it and then qualify it a little bit and then like try to move forward together. And that is great for like bringing, you know, people together, but without Mara's very like decision driven um, definitiveness that I find and conviction that I find so attractive. It's like, just, it wouldn't work, you know, just, just my style alone. Um, But I think actually, you know, there's this, these interesting conversations around something that's been harder in COVID is with social, with isolation is like when you're left alone with your thoughts, you know, they can, they can kind of amplify because often how we work through things. And this is true with like stigma around mental health, the the way that you reduce stigma around mental health is repetition and awareness. So it's like talking about things and um, breaking the spiral of silence around what we struggle with. And I have found my relationship with Mara. And I think some of that might just be having a co-founder, having a female co-founder. And then there's just things that are very specific to our relationship. She will help. We, we, we both have our times, right? The times where we're down or doubting ourselves and we're able to kind of pull each other up. Um, and, and the things that we struggle with are sort of different. And so we can help each other see ourselves a little bit more. Um, and that reassurance and that like 
feeling, you know, feeling not alone, having that friendship has been, has been so key for us. Yeah. You know, when we, we raised our first round in 2016, I mean, part of it was that I wasn't in the venture world, so it was all unfamiliar to me, but it was very hard to find people that looked like us as well as diversity of personality. Like what were the personality types that represent what it means to be like a successful entrepreneur and all the like kind of loaded history that that typically comes with. Um, and when I think about meeting someone like you, you know, like that, all of these, these seemingly like, okay, day-to-day interactions, the more that that network grows, the more that um, we get PR coverage and a young woman reads about us and hears your story of, you know, being born in Costa Rica to going to Yale, to my story of being Asian American and, you know, going to community colleges, there's going to be someone that relates to that experience and is going to think for the first time, like, oh, I could do that too. I just had a thought too, while you were talking that I realized, you know, something that has fundamentally changed too, is the flexibility of what we're doing right now. Right. Which is that normally you and I would be on a panel together, like maybe because we both are part of the same portfolio, right. Of a, of a coastal VC, but but not like this. And so I yes. think that one really great outcome of COVID and what's happened is the fact that there is the flexibility to do this remote work that is not gonna go away. Um, and, and so it does open up opportunities for women for fractional work, you know, you know doing yes. their job in a way that's more conducive to the life that they want to live. And I also think it opens up, you know, the, like the freelancer is no longer like the struggling, you know, Right. Weaving together hours, but is now often a highly compensated, you know, part-time employee of, of a company, whether it's a startup or not. And so there's so much opportunity for women to learn in that environment and think of new right. ways to, to use and refine their skills. And so I do think for the women that are already in the workforce that this, this new normal is actually going to be a long-term advantage. I totally a- agree like having, being able to have your full self too, like, you know, for me, for one of the reasons we moved home is like being closer to family. And that's really important. I want to feel like I can be closer to family and parents with some health issues and also run a business. Oh, the last thing that I, w- I was thinking about too, is the power of language. When you look at, you know, everything from the Me Too movement to the fight for racial justice to, um, I think, unfortunately, what came out of, you know, a lot of issues with the Trump administration was, America getting better dialogue for talking about what's not okay. And for example, we did a, we did a, um, a shine, uh, daily shine on representation burnout. And that's the feeling of exhaustion from being the only person of a certain identity in a room. And so whether that's, you know, ends up with you being tokenized or meant to speak to a monolith, that term was something that I think five or six years ago, people wouldn't have gotten, you know, broad kind of everybody sort of wouldn't have gotten, um, I think there's so much language now for women to speak to why something's not okay, why something is problematic or why something is a result of like toxic masculinity. And we are in an era of accountability for companies, for, for people in positions of power to be good actors. And there's more, there's more channels to call out bad actors. And I think the language, particularly for women to, you know, who we've been socialized as a culture to always make people comfortable. I think for the first time I'm realizing like, that's not my job. My job is to be kind. My job is to be direct. And my job is a number of things, but right now it's to build a business. And so if something's not okay, I feel more comfortable speaking to that, why it's not okay. I have more education than I did five years ago. And I think that's going to be, that's one of the things that makes me most hopeful for the future. Yeah, I completely agree. And we did kind of brush over the Me Too movement and it was such a huge 
decade in our both of our careers just kind of oh my gosh. estimating where we are age-wise and of course yes I'm sure you have your own stories and I definitely have mine but I do that is another level of optimism that I have that um what was yes. once kind of okay and quiet or shameful experiences is no longer okay and we have allies across the board right yes in other men in other women um to make sure that or as much as possible that what yes. was once normal is not allowed behavior anymore and you know and how many, and how many women maybe stepped out of the game because of that experience that I think I hope will be decreased. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, this was a really amazing conversation. I, know. I, I hope I get to meet you, you in person sometime. The same thing. I was thinking the same thing and just congrats on everything you built. You are, I was just, I was like, Desiree is so smart. Um, you are so smart and talented and um, it's just been a joy to, to talk to you and um, just a helpful practice of like being so in it all the time, just taking a step back and reflecting on this last year. So thanks for the conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Kauffman Foundation podcast. For more stories on growing an inclusive economy, please visit us at emkf.org forward slash currents. The Uncommon Conversation series brings two people together to discuss personal perspectives and fresh opinions on topics related to the Kauffman Foundation's work. The perspectives of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kaufman Foundation, but are presented here to celebrate uncommon voices and civil discourse to move conversations forward.